You are listening to the podcast of Anthem Church in Columbia, Missouri. For more information, visit us online at anthemcolumbia.com. Amen. I'm not going to lie. Kenny, you can sing, man. I'm over there like shouting, and, and I'm not the best singer, so just confession, sometimes I just like mouth the words and pretend I sound like that. And you're like, she's a female though, and I'm like, I don't care, it's beautiful. And so... That's what I do in worship. Well, welcome. Welcome. Uh, glad you guys are here. Uh, my name is Stan Hayek, one of the pastors on staff, and so we're glad you guys would join us this morning. We're going to be in Genesis chapter 25. And if you've been coming to Anthem for a few weeks, you notice we really make use out of a plurality of teachers. So we really do believe here that Jesus is the head of the church, and we don't want any one person uh, to take that spot. And so we have a plurality of leadership, plurality of teachers, and um, we just really feel like that's the best biblical model. And so um, one of those guys you got to hear from is Todd Van Voors, who's an elder here at our church. Uh, he's a lay elder, which if you're wondering what that means, it means he's a pastor for free, okay? Works at Shelter Insurance. That's who pays his, uh, his check, but he's one of the, the pastoral guys here, an elder. And so when I think of that, I'm on staff. I get paid to be good. Todd, he's good for nothing. <laughs> uh, you know what I mean, right? Like, so Todd, this is Todd, and I love bragging on Todd. He is, he's a dear friend. But Todd so desires for us to teach through Scripture, which we love to just take a book and teach through it, that he's laid out all 66 books for us in the life of Anthem Church so we could tr- teach through the entire Scripture. In fact, he's gone back through then, as he's got these books laid out, every week he's laid out until the spring of 2022. So, yeah, week to week. Like, so he breaks down the book. And, he, and so if you want to know what we're teaching, like, uh, September 6th uh, of 2021, Todd could tell you, okay? He's crazy, right? Uh, slacker. Uh, so I don't know why we're only out to spring of 2022, Todd. You should really keep up, okay? So... Um, but Todd is, is, is awesome, and then it's my job as the paid staff guy to come through with that teaching schedule and insert the name of the guy that's going to be teaching, which means I get to cherry pick whichever text I want. But apparently, I'm not that great because I picked today, and as you see today, it's like, wow, that's a little bit tougher one. And so I did not do my homework because today's text, Genesis 25, with Jacob and Esau, it begins to have the undertones of this doctrine of election. You're like, okay, I put my name on that one. And so, but it, we asked the question today, this is our overarching question, does God pick winners? Does God pick winners? And what we're going to see in today's chapter, as well as the rest of Genesis and the rest of Scripture the main character is God. We're going to be introduced to some, uh, some people here, but ultimately, in our whole theme for Genesis is introducing God. And so we're going to learn about God. He's the main character today. And so I'm excited to dive in. Uh, and I would just, uh, yeah, invite you guys. So Genesis chapter 25, what you need to understand if you've missed some of it, we, we did Genesis in the spring. We took a little bit of a break over the summer. But Genesis chapter 12, we get introduced to Abraham. And we've been following Abraham now for 14 chapters. And so in Genesis 25, his story's going to come to an end. But first, at the young, swinging age of 140, Genesis 25 verse 1, 
Abraham took another wife. See, his wife had passed away just three years before this, Sarah. So Abraham took another wife whose name was Keturah. And he goes on to father six more sons with her. And in uh, Genesis 25, verse 5, Abraham gave all he had to Isaac. But the sons of his concubines, Abraham gave gifts while he was still living he sent them away from his son Isaac eastward to the east country. These are the days of Abraham's years of Abraham's life, 175 years. Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age. Yes, I would say so. A good old age, an old man full of years and was gathered to his people. Let's stop there in our narrative. Again, some of us, for me, intrigued by this thought that, that here he is, and he takes another wife and fathers six more sons. Again, he was married to Sarah, and she was barren, and God was gracious to them in their very old age and allows them to get pregnant. But not before Abraham shows a lack of trust in that plan. Sarah proposes, hey, why don't you marry Hagar, and maybe, maybe that's what God had planned, that you were supposed to marry my servant and father children through her. Well, that plan backfires pretty quick. They do have a kid, but it brings about this, this tension. And then we see here that he fathers six more sons through Keturah. And this presents this problem, which is why Abraham, while he's still living, he says, wait, you need to, to give space to Isaac. I need to send you off. Here's some gifts. I'm sending you off out east because my son Isaac, we, he is supposed to be the one that inherits this land. And whenever we reach the end of somebody's life, if you've attended a funeral, you ask the question and you look at this person's life and say, was it a life well lived? And I think it asked the question that we asked in the beginning was, was Abraham a winner? Was he a, was he a good guy? And certainly, if you remember the narrative, there were some good moments. He trusts God and he moves. He's a sojourner in this foreign land. And so he trusts God in that. He's generous towards his nephew, Lot. He says, hey, you pick where you want to go in the land. You go left, I'll go right, right, I'll go left. He heroically rescues Lot. If you remember that story earlier in Genesis, these kings come and attack and carry Lot away. And what five kings couldn't do, Abraham and his servants go and do. And so there's this heroic rescue. There's this willingness to sacrifice his one and only son, Isaac, but also when you look at the, the person of Abraham, you can't look over the fact of this whole Hagar incident, that he fails to trust God's promise, and in his humanity, in his flesh, he makes his own way. It doesn't say, God, your will be done, but, but my will be done. Allows Hagar to get pregnant. She is so mistreated, y'all, if you miss this. She is so mistreated by Sarah, she runs out in the wilderness to die. God brings her back only to then have the baby, as the baby's growing, to be so mistreated again that she gets sent out by Abraham with a little bit of water and some bread back into the wilderness, and Abraham says, God bless. Okay, these aren't the most shining things on his resume. Fails to trust God a couple times where he goes into a foreign land and he tells his wife, man, you're so beautiful this could present a problem, so why don't you just lie and say that you're my sister? Again, there's more data points, but, but if I ask, hey, was Abraham a winner? You'd be like, uh, I mean, 
right? Maybe. Nonetheless, God made a covenant with him. Despite his humanity, despite his failings, and I want to emphasize this because this should be comforting to, to those of us in this room. That does God just partner with winners? When you look at Abraham, there, there's good things and there's not so good things. But what did God do in Genesis 15? He didn't make it conditional upon Abraham and his goodness. When God made a covenant with Abraham, he said, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to do these things. And he had Abraham take five different animals, split them in half. Pretty graphic. If you put half over here and half over here, and traditionally when you made a covenant, you would walk through those animals and what it was communicating, that if I break this covenant, may what was done to these animals be done to me. And so God makes this covenant says, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make you great. And him and Abraham walk through. Now God says, why don't you just watch this? I'm going to walk through this because it's not conditional upon you, Abraham. God makes the covenant and he makes it pendant upon himself and himself alone. That should be a comforting thing. God says, I choose you. You can't unchoose me. I am going to do this. Despite your humanity, despite your imperfections, I will make your name great. And people will go, God did it. When we look at the life of Abraham, we should look at a man who's blessed, who God has gone before, and we should be like, God did it. God did it. Now, Abraham responds, of course. He responds to God's blessing. He responds in faith at times. But God should get the credit for the life and legacy of Abraham. And our narrative is going to continue. And again, we're going to continue with more humans following in the pattern of Abraham. But our narrative doesn't continue following Ishmael. See, in Genesis 25, verse 9, you see it accounts for Ishmael. Uh, Isaac and Ishmael were sons. They come together and they bury the father. But in uh, 25, verse 17, it says this, that Ishmael lives 137 years before he passes away. In our narrative, it will no longer follow him or his offspring because this is not the son of the promise. Yeah, he's a son of Abraham, but not of Abraham and Sarah. He's not this miracle child that Isaac was. His mother was a Gentile. And again, his birth was out of a lack of faith. And so Ishmael, he died not receiving any inheritance from Abraham. And so here's where our paths kind of part. And so we don't follow Ishmael's story, but our narrative continues following Isaac. And so in verse 19, let's continue reading. These are the generation of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean of Padam Aram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. Last week, time out there. So last week, we saw just how God provided Rebekah. Isaac trusted God, stayed in the presence of God, did not leave this promised land, but instead the servant goes, and the servant prays, and God immediately answers this prayer, and here comes Rebecca. And Rebecca, in faith, goes back to this servant's land to meet Isaac, who has become now her husband. And you got to imagine what it would have been like for her 
leaving to go meet your groom, maybe you're like, I mean, I hope he's kind of attractive. <laughs> like, this is a really a step of faith. But despite his appearance, he is pretty well-to-do. He inherits, you saw clear back in verse, was it five, that he inherits all of Abraham's possessions. And again, Abraham can drop some serious coin on a burial plot. He had so much livestock, so much possession, that at one point the land couldn't support both him and Lot. And so here is Isaac, the recipient of just so much blessing. And here, Rebecca would have had it all. She just didn't have a kid. And I know that that's perhaps tugging on some heartstrings because infertility is a real struggle. Perhaps people in here, and it's especially, I think, hard on the marriage, hard for a husband, but I think uniquely hard for a wife because wives, God has made women to be nurturing, caring, gentle. You don't have to stick around our house too long to realize that fact. I love my daughters. I can get down with them. But in the middle of the night when they're hurting, as our little three-year-old has been last couple weeks, little sickness, she doesn't say, Daddy. She says, Mommy. And you nudge them, and you're like, hey. Because Sarah is just more nurturing, I think, by design. This nurturing nature is in women. And I just want to point that out because you see this in, in, in college gals. I think it's that nurturing nature that tends to perhaps get some college gals, single gals, in trouble because this nurturing nature in dating relationships, they see a, 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 a helpless, boyish kind of person. Some of you are like, I know who you're talking about now. <laughs> and this nurturing thing comes out. You're like, I bet I could help him you know, find his masculinity, be a man. And so you see these strong women... You laugh because it's true. You see strong women dating these guys, and you're like, what is going on here? And I'm saying, that's the right instinct, but the wrong outlet, women. He ought to be strong and be able to lead and protect. He doesn't need another mom. And so I, that's a separate message. In fact, you get to... <laughs> I'll stop. But, but we, do, we have a whole relationship talk tonight. That's a shameless plug. If you're a college student... Come listen to me rant on that, okay? So 7 o'clock on campus, talk to college staffers. So, but this nurturing thing that is there, and, 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 and Rebecca is unable to realize that because she's 20 years without a child. But what happened? It said that Isaac, verse 21, Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer. He sought God in prayer on behalf of his wife. Men, are you lifting your wives up in prayer? Are we lifting our children up in prayer? We see that here, that Isaac does do that well, and he prays, and God answers that prayer. And it's not just for married guys, but, but, but single guys. Are you praying for sisters in Christ? Are you praying for your future spouse? It's, it's not the main point, but it's worth noting, and God hears this prayer, and the Lord allowed her to conceive. And in verse 22, we see that the children struggled together within her, and she said, if it is thus, what is happening to me? And so she inquired on the Lord. Let's stop there. Just by show of hands, do we have any 
women in the crowd that have given birth to children. Just, just go ahead. Bless you, okay? Yeah, so if you've birthed children, your hand went up. Okay, so uh, <laughs> what's going on here? New mom, and now all of a sudden, there is something happening inside of her that is unlike anything she's ever experienced. And I just know, for us, we never had twins, but I know there is not a whole lot of room in there in the later part of pregnancy. You know what I'm talking about? I just remember this. It was freaky when all of a sudden, like, Sarah's belly's there, and all of a sudden, like, you see something protrude out the side. And she's like, touch it. It's its head. And I'm like, I don't know. Okay. You know, so you rub... Rub his head, but then you can start to see like hands and, and feet. Okay, I can't imagine no room, and there's twins inside of her, and she she knows enough to know like what is going on in her is not normal. Did you see that? She's like, uh, if this, what is happening to me? Uh, which I think a lot of moms have said that, and and so she goes and she she prays. And I, I love that. She follows her husband's example who prayed for her and she conceived. She needs an answer. She prays. I am so quick to want to run to others, to want, run a, want to run and find some resource versus just running to the Lord in prayer. And she goes to the Lord in prayer. And God said to her in verse 23, there's two nations in your womb, two peoples within you who should be divided. The one should be stronger than the other and the older shall serve the younger. And when her days uh, to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak, so they named him Esau. And afterwards, brother came out, and his hand was holding Esau's heel, so they named him Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. And she inquires because of the Lord, because there's this WrestleMania taking place in there. And if you have empathy for her because she's already got twins, your empathy should like increase seven notches with this next thing. Can you imagine the pain in when it's time, women, from what I understand, it's like this baby must come out. And then there's this, this moment where this precious life comes out and makes its like first cries. Okay, her firstborn comes out. Did you see the description? He's, he's red in all his body like a hairy cloak, okay? I actually was able to obtain a birth picture. She gives birth to a Wookiee. <laughs> like that, I, that's, you read the description. That's Esau, right? I think Esau is actually Hebrew for Chewbacca. Uh, and so, but that, that's the description. Red in his whole body like a hairy cloak. I just, at that point, I know every newborn's beautiful. Not that one. Like, at, at that point, you wonder if the midwife is like, oh, uh, it, it's, it's here, whatever it is. Uh, but that's what's happening. And again, Jacob, and in the womb, you see that these, these two are struggling and just envisioning, this is probably over-dramatization, but, but like him pulling Esau's hair, because he had plenty to pull, and they're fighting in the womb, and you, you ask why in verse 23. I know we kind of skipped over it, but God said there's two nations in this womb, two peoples within you that should be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. God tells them, tells her before they were born, tells them that there's going to be division. 
You read it. He said one is going to be favored over the other one. One is going to be more powerful. One is going to serve the other. Before they were born, God spoke that. And there's going to be this division, but make note, the parents didn't curb that division. They only fostered it with what comes next. The boys grew up, in verse 27, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man, dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. There's going to be division amongst these two, as God spoke of. And the parents, they foster it by picking favorites. They added to this dysfunction. They should have been pushing their kids to, towards unity. But instead, they're saying, no, I love that one. And mom says, well, I love that one. How dysfunctional is that? Parents, we should and ought to be pushing our kids towards unity. That's what we should be doing. Regardless of what was prophesied over them, we should push our household to be unified. That's why if you ask, well, who had the toy first? Does somehow getting a toy first entitle you to be selfish? No, we ought to be shepherding our children's hearts, showing them what it means to share, what it means to be selfless, teaching them how to love their siblings like Jesus loved. That's why, again, they should have unity within the siblings, but unity with parents. That's why in our household, we're not going to count to 10 for obedience. In doing so, all you're doing with that is teaching your children they can delay obedience nine more seconds before they have to listen to you. There ought to be unity between kids and their parents, between kids and each other. And the parents need to be fostering that. Mom and dad need to be unified in order for that to happen. Clearly, there is a lack of unity between uh, Isaac and Rebecca. Again, parents, in your household, whatever mom said, that's what dad says, and vice versa. My kids, they can't come and ask mom and get a no and come to dad and hope they're going to get a yes. There needs to be a level of consistency. That's what kids need. And so we need to foster unity within the home. But here we have patriarch of the nation of Israel, Isaac, favoring one son. Why? Because of the food he provides. Spoiler alert, and an observation that came out of our connection group this week, he favors him because of food, and ultimately that son's downfall is going to come at the expense of of food. Again, when you're looking at the narrative, we're seeing God in this, but looking at the individual. Is Isaac a winner? I mean, there was the prayer thing, but then there's the whole picking a son based on food he provides. Again, I mention that because it should be somewhat comforting his humanity that despite the dysfunction of this family, God is still going to do something great. He's raising up a great nation in spite of imperfect, imperfect characters. And it's comforting because there's this lie that exists. And when people come into the church, they're like, well, I got to get good before God can use me. Say, so if you believe that, you underestimate how powerful God is. He can draw straight lines with crooked sticks. God can use broken people to bring glory to his name. And so God is the main character, and he's working despite the dysfunction. But see how this dysfunction continues. The two, once when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in front, uh, from the field, and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew 
for I am exhausted. Therefore, his name was called Edom. Now, you should see in verse 29, once, like, begs the question, did this happen on multiple occasions where Esau went out hunting? We don't know, but, but we see Esau's a little bit of a poor planner. He went out hunting, and you have to understand, again, who's his family? Abraham, Isaac. He is so blessed. He's not hunting out of necessity. It's not like they need food. He's hunting just for the enjoyment of it, which, hey, I can relate to that. Okay, no fault there, but he is such a poor planner. He goes out hunting and is so exhausted, doesn't get anything, and comes back, and he's just having this moment. And again, I'm like, why didn't you take a little bit of like lamb jerky, maybe in your fanny pack? Like he would have had access to that. You know his cupboard was just stock full of everything. Like maybe a handful of nuts, something to like get you through. But he doesn't think ahead and he comes back and here's Jacob who we saw earlier in 27. He liked to hang around the tents. He was a pretty quiet guy. And he's there cooking this stew. And I just wonder as Esau gets to him, like how far was Jacob really away from everybody else? Like, how far was the pantry from where Jacob was at? Like, you just, you wonder. But nonetheless, like our Wookiee is going to start to sound like Tarzan because what he says in the original language is like four or five words from my understanding. Like, me, eat, red stuff, tired. Okay. Uh, so, so that's what he musters out. And, and you just, you see in Esau, there's this, there's a strength without restraint. A strength without restraint, which Oswald Chambers would say, it's a double weakness. It's being strong in the wrong direction. And Oswald Chambers would say, if you're going to go in the wrong direction, better to be weak, because you might not get there and might not cause as much damage. And so to be strong and not show restraint, be heading in the wrong direction, is a double weakness. And it's at the root of things like sexual assault, rape. Being in a college town, we can't dismiss this. I think statistically now, it's, it's as high as one in four women on a college campus will be sexually assaulted. This is a terrible statistic. As a, as a, guy, as a dad with four daughters, this stuff just makes me sick. And to think that it's not just happening on campus and in community and in, in the church. You, you read about these evils and wrongs. And, and to think even in this room, perhaps some have suffered such an atrocity from men who are supposed to be using their strength to protect women. But instead, they use it to prey on them. The strength without restraint. And I just want to invite our men to check our hearts. Because at the root of rape, what you have is this, I want to gratify myself, a lack of restraint to the harm and dehumanization of women, which shares the same root as internet pornography, a nearly $17 billion industry that feeds on men that show, that want to have self-gratification, who lack restraint at the expense of dehumanizing women. And those are people made in the image of God. They're somebody's daughters. And yet because of that, because of that unrestraint, 
Sex trafficking is a real thing. It's been said there's more slaves now than there was years ago because of those that are enslaved in sex trafficking. Man, all of that is wrong. And it's, it shares this same root. And so I would just want to say, before we throw stones at Esau and be like, wow, what lack of self-control. I'm saying for God's people, that should not be so. And if that is you, I'm saying that's not what God's people do. Repent, turn from that. And I'd say this lack of self-control isn't bound to a gender, right? This lack of restraint affects both men and women who are in the flesh. And I would say, women, I would invite you. You're right to be angry of those objectifying actions, but check your own heart. Don't in return objectify men with what you read, what you watch, what you wear, and what you do. We as God's people should have a level of self-control, understanding that, that our greatest pleasure comes in doing the work of the Father, that home is, is heaven. And so listening to our flesh and acting on that is just going to be, bring pain and distance. And so, again, we, we look at, at Esau, and, and we can't scoff at him. We have to look at ourselves. Do we lack some of that same restraint? And I would just even now just come into mind, like, even restraint with the words we use. Show restraint as God's people. Failure to restrain this, being strong in the wrong direction, causes brokenness. And so Esau, he already looks like an animal. Now he's just going to act like one. See what he does here. In verse 31, Jacob, whose name means deceiver, lives up to it. He says, sell me your birthright now. And Esau said, I'm about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? Now, this is what you would call an overreaction, okay? It's like when my kids eat lunch, and then a half hour later, I'm starving. Just my kids do that? It's like, no, no, you're not starving. You may be hungry because you didn't eat all your lunch, but you're not starving. And so the fact that Esau's like, I'm about to die. It's like, no, you're not going to die. And so he's a little bit dramatic, overreaction. And Jacob, he seizes the opportunity to swindle him out of his birthright. And so Jacob said in verse 33, swear to me now. So he swore to him, and Esau sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate, drank, and rose and went away. Thus Esau despised his birthright. Now, time out. You got to understand what Esau just walked away from. The birthright, this was given to the firstborn male, and he would have received a double portion of his father's inheritance. He would have been, and secondly, he would have received a special blessing from the father because in the father's absence, when he passed away, the firstborn would become the head of the household. He would have had the authority to, to say what happens with the land and the servants and, and all that. And again, a double portion, this considerable amount of, of authority. And in this uh, case in particular, he would have had a special covenantal relationship with the Lord. Now, reaching for my prop here. So that's what he had. Just going to get started on my lunch a little early today. And he exchanges it for this. For this. <laughs> well, we'll just put that over here. Uh, for those listening online, it is an immovable can of beans, okay? Uh, 
Mmm. Mmm. Oh, I don't know if his had macaroni in it, but this one does. Uh, oh. I'm sure if you're hungry, this looks good, but I must not be hungry right now. Um, but he trades it for a bowl of soup and a hunk of bread. And again, if you've had siblings, perhaps you've been swindled, like they've traded you their big nickels for your just puny little dimes. This is a whole, just, <laughs> I was taken by that once. I'm still a little bitter. Uh, <laughs> but this is a whole new level of deception that Jacob shows. A whole new level of deception, because deception, here's his brother. Again, he's overreacting for big brother, but nonetheless, he sees a family member in need, and in his greed, he seeks to capitalize on that need. And so he takes birthright from him. And, and again, it doesn't sound like the attitude of a godly guy. Is Jacob a winner? <sighs> Name like deceiver. Again, we're just getting started on his narrative. And then here is Esau. But unlike some naive kid exchanging dimes for nickels and all that stuff, uh, he's despising, outright despising his birthright because he knew. He, he was not unaware. He knew what he stood to gain. And he said, I'll trade it for a bowl of soup and some bread. And so you're reading this, and you're like, how do I make sense of that? That seems so illogical. That seems so broken, so wrong on both of their parts. And again, I think we can't miss what was said earlier in Genesis 25. Do you remember when, before they were born, that God told Rebekah that these two, while they're still being formed in the womb, she said the older will serve the younger. Romans 9 adds more color to this. And again, we're just unpacking scripture. And so you wrestle with it. You tell me how you would read this. Romans 9 verse 10 and not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived by one man, our, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue. Okay, let's stop there. We're reading this in Connection Group and studying this out, and it's like, well, well God knew what they were going to do, and so therefore he, he picked Jacob because Jacob was a winner. One, I know we're early in the narrative, but you're giving Jacob way too much credit if you think he's a winner. Just like his father and his father before him and all those that come after him, you got to keep turning right until you get to a winner, and that's Jesus, okay? And so in between, a lot of broken people. And so was Jacob a winner? Eh, not so much. But again, what does he say here in Romans 9? He'd say, again, next slide, Joe, if you would, that... Uh, Though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. Romans 3 talks about this. No one is righteous, not even one. No one understands. No one seeks after God. Ephesians 2, which Luke read, we were all dead in our transgressions of sin. Let me ask you this. What do dead people do? Nothing. They're dead. Thank you. Nothing. But that's where we are. And now, 
time out because I know, I know before we keep going, I just want to make sure you're not jumping to unwarranted and unbiblical conclusions because people hear God choosing Jacob and they say, well, it's all predetermined. Therefore, there's no sense in trying. All of our actions are meaningless because if God does it, well then, I guess we don't have any role in this. That's called fatalism. That's not a biblical response. That's not what the Bible says. I want to be clear on that. Romans 9 does not contradict the truth that Jacob and Esau and you and I make choices in life and we will be held responsible for those choices. If Jacob is saved, he will be saved by faith. And if Esau is condemned, he will be condemned for his evil deeds and his unbelief. Our final judgment will accord with the way we respond to the gospel in this life. There is a level of mystery. I get that. If you want me to explain it in the foyer, find Todd, okay? Like how this <laughs> mystery exists where, where God chooses us, elects us, but yet we are also to respond and choose God. So does God choose us or do we choose him? The answer is yes, both. There's, but this acknowledgement from Romans 9 that we see here is that I propose God gets the, the credit of being the first mover. That God is the first mover in somebody coming to know Jesus. And I think that is reflective in our prayers. When we pray for somebody to have a relationship with God, we are praying and we are asking God to act in that person's life. We are praying that God would soften their heart. God, would you show them mercy? God, would you be gracious to them? God, would you move in their heart? Again, if it's all up to the individual to find God on their own, what is it that we're talking to God about? Oh, God, I sure hope they figure it out. Yeah, I do too. Okay. Good talk. No, we pray in expectation that God must move. He must soften their hearts. Now, again, they must respond to that. It does not negate the personal responsibility to respond. And because God is moving in people's hearts and recognizing that, doesn't mean that we don't have a personal responsibility to share because do you know who it is that God's working on? Nor do I. It's just giving credit to God as the first mover. And I would say, in, in kind of as we wind out today, if you're here, how do I know if, if God's moving? The fact that you're asking that question is a good indicator. The fact that he would send his Holy Spirit to start convicting you of sins. I remember I, I didn't struggle with impurity before Jesus. I just did it. <laughs> and then all of a sudden, God started putting conviction on my life. Man, it's acknowledging the people that God put in your path to point you to him. And so if you're here today, I would want you, and if you have yet to enter into a relationship with God, just want you to recognize that you must respond to what he's done. Jesus, his death on a cross is sufficient for the forgiveness of our sins, but you must respond to that. God is willing. He, the offer is there. And it, it's in Acts 2. Well, what must you do? Repent. Acknowledge that. Put your trust in God for the forgiveness of your sins. And again, for those of you who say, well, well, I've done that. As we take communion today, and there's tables set up all around here, 
would we do it with just a, 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 this attitude of gratitude, acknowledging that, that God, in his graciousness, picks people who are less than winners, who are on a path to destruction, and God, in his mercy, in his grace, intervene. And so God, God ought to get the credit for this gift that we have been given Again, we need to respond, but to God be the glory that he makes it available. And as we continue following, we're going to see that God, like with Abraham, like he did with Isaac, and he's going to do it again with Jacob, we're saying, I'm going to do something through you, and everybody's going to have to look at you and say, "Mm, praise God. Praise God for his graciousness upon broken people. And that grace extends to you today. And so I'm going to invite the band up. Uh, and I, everybody else, you can close your notes up. Uh, we're going to have an opportunity to respond. And, and we take communion a lot. But again, I don't want this to lose its meaning. Just because we do it often, um, still want it to hold value that Jesus, his body was broken for us. His blood was shed for us. And so as you take communion today, You can head to one of the tables, you break off a piece of the bread, dip it in the cup, and take that. And again, that is a sign, a symbol that's given for people, that your trust is in Jesus. And as you do that today, would we do it with an attitude of just gratefulness, thanking God that he would have put that person in our lives, that he would have done that. For me, I'm going to take communion today thanking God for Jeff Houghton thanking God for that camp ministry, thanking God for that preacher, and to do that, and ultimately thanking Jesus that he was the one that sought me out. And so would you do that? But if you have yet to establish a relationship with God, I'd say the first thing is not communion. The first thing would just be praying, talking to God, and inviting him into your life, saying, God, please forgive me. I want to have a relationship with you. I trust in you. And so as the band plays, invite you in at your own time, when you're ready, to head over, take communion, and then come back and remain standing in worship. So I'll just pray for us. God, we do. We beg for you to continue to move. God, it's only you who changes hearts. You bring the dead to life. You help the blind see. God, you, it's you that is moving. You are the main character in all the scripture, and you are the main character in our story. And so, God, we just give you credit. May your name be holy, honored, and set apart. And we do pray, as God's people, we beg you for those that are yet walking in darkness, those that will yet face judgment for their sins. God, we pray that you would have mercy, that you would win them to yourself. So God, would you move in those hearts today and bring them to you? And God, we do, as people that are going to take communion, that acknowledge you, we do commit to being faithful, to go to those people and offer them the opportunity of salvation. So God, would you enlist an army here at Anthem Church today to take that good news forward, good news of your mercy and your grace 
that we've seen played out to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and our own lives. God, to you be the glory. Thank you, Jesus.